0: You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here are your hosts, Ezra Beyer and David Hartkopf. Well, Dave, we're moving into summer here. And speaking of moving... (laughs) (laughs) segue. That was terrible, Ezra. Yeah. yeah. Speaking Uh, of moving, you're going from Cincinnati all the way down to the deep south
1: yeah, it's going to be quite the move. I'm a, like a native Northerner too, so that's going to be uh, an interesting uh, transition. But for, for those that
0: don't know you well, where are you moving? What, what are you doing, real quick?
1: Okay, so I'm moving to Virginia, and I'm going to be a campus pastor at a K twelve, and also involved with some fine arts administration. Had um, a, a church that started a school um, pretty recently, maybe it's ten to fifteen years old, really, and it's growing quickly, and God's moving and yeah, just, I, it's hard to quantify, you know, there's, we always talk about how does God lead people? And it, it's kind of like multivariable calculus, but it's been a beautiful journey just to see God calling our family forward and seeing him come through for us. And, uh, it's, it's a grieving process to throw things in boxes and leave meaningful relationships like I have, uh, where I'm at now, but also just, yeah, I, I believe in the mission of God in the world and, I know there's no ideal place to do that except
0: the place he sets you down, right? So I'm I'm kind of looking forward to what's next as well. It's kind of neat too. We've been praying for the last year and a half, I think, calling each yeah. other every Monday through Wednesday or Thursday, and we'll just call and pray together for five minutes yeah. at noon. And it's neat to see to feel like this is a direct answer to those prayers. Yeah. It's yeah, uh, I've seen over and over again things we've prayed about as just um
1: and, of course, things are happening so quickly. But when I just pause for a second to reflect on that, I've just seen God come through in tangible ways to just uh, not only generally lead me, but just specifics. And uh, I believe that he's, he's, he's personal.
0: And, uh, yeah, it's been a, a, neat, a neat journey. I meant to talk to you about this off-air, but uh, Mm -hmm. since you're moving, we're actually going to be moving you off the Monday Christian, and so you're no longer going to be a part of what we're doing. (laughs) I appreciate that. I'll turn in my (laughs) keys on the way out, man. (laughs) No, uh, but uh, for those that are in our audience that are driving in their cars and they almost had a panic attack, um, you're still going to stick stick around, right? Yeah, I think so. I think they'll they'll probably be a, a few weeks off here and there.
1: Uh, as we move and try to figure out how to get internet in the country and stuff like that, But yeah, <laughs> the I, uh, challenges, huh? <laughs> yeah, we just we get to chat with a lot of cool people, and
0: yeah, and yeah. also you're you're a good dude, So I can't quit you like that, man. That's right. Um, our guest today, J.R. Woodward. Woodward, um, great, great conversation. We just finished, wrapped it up, and man, I felt like we could have gone for another hour. Yeah, it's it's like w- when we and you talk, Dave. Forty-five minutes, we're done, right? Yep. It's like, okay, we maxed out our time. Let's get out of here. Yeah. With JR, it's like, ah, oh, he has a wealth of information. And one of the reasons I really loved this conversation, okay, there's been all this talk about scandals in the church, and that's a very popular thing on social media, Christian social media, right? Um, but there's not a lot of detailed talk about what to do, and how do you prevent? Scandals from happening. How do you not yeah. engage so much with leaders that are prone to and structures that are prone to scandals and all that kind of stuff? The the preventative stuff that Jr. really talks about. Yeah, and so this won't be the flashy conversation that others might be, but it'll be I think one of the most beneficial if you really stick with this uh, to the end. Yeah, I think it's the old adage,
1: you know, like let's let's put a fence at the top of the cliff rather than an ambulance down at the bottom. I think I love the fact that Jr. is trying to put a fence up top and say, like, hey, let's design and build systems that make it less likely that a lot of the scandals that we've seen over the last 20, 30 years within the church, as far as very public failings of leaders, that that that's less likely to happen. And I, I think he offers a hopeful way forward. And I just I don't know. I. You know, as we, you and I, have talked about the Mars Hill podcast, rise and fall, and I, I listen to a lot of it. But at some point, I just, it's not edifying for us to stare at stuff that's on fire, you know. And so JR's work is hopeful to me, and so it it was nice to engage with it
0: and with him. Yep. Let's go ahead and get right into that uh, right now. Thank you so much for joining the Monday Christian Podcast today. Great to have you on. Good to be here. Well, it's we connected a few months ago when I was in California, and so uh, well, one of the things I, I noticed when we were out there and uh, a little thing that our mutual friend Daniel Yang put on, um, we were in a group of maybe 30, 40 different uh, church planners, people that were engaged in the church, and one of the things I noticed, everyone in the room had, you could tell they had a lot of respect for you and looked up to you. And so, uh, yeah, was just, that was just something I noticed right away, and uh, through engaging with more of your work after we had a chance to meet. Um, I just really appreciate how you come across, and so that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on to have this conversation today. Well, thank you, man. Yeah, yeah. it was good to, get to meet you there as well. For those that aren't aware of you, um, give us a quick bio. How did you first come to faith in Christ, and what did that journey look like for you?
2: Yeah, actually, so... It was right before my senior year in college. So I didn't grow up in a Christian household. And um, it was through my fraternity, believe it or not, my social fraternity. <laughs> so I was, uh, I, I was uh, going to summer school. I couldn't really pay for summer school and my apartment at the same time. So my older brother in the fraternity, who was a Christian, uh, invited me to stay at their place for free. And I thought about it for about two seconds. I said, you got a deal. And so <laughs> <laughs> that's where I started my couch surfing <laughs> life. And, uh you know, when you live with somebody, you kind of get to know them pretty well. And they seem like the genuine folks really trying to follow Jesus. And so it intrigued me to look into Jesus, to read through the gospels. And I just fell in love with him, uh, just how he called out the religious hucksters, but also was uh super friendly to those that the world seemed to damn and dismiss. And so I just thought like, uh you know, I was an RA uh, that next, you know, Already, so as the year was starting, um, my goal was I, I was kind of a believer with some skepticism. I, I thought if this is real, then it's going to be transformative for my life and the people around me. And so my goal was to share my faith with everybody in my before the end of the year. And so that made for a very interesting year and seeing a couple people come to faith. Uh, I mean, just crazy things. And uh, but I did. I started to see transformation, and I felt like it was really weird because I'm just trying to follow this Jesus character that I was getting to know and getting resistance from different places that I wasn't necessarily expecting. I'm just trying mm-hmm. to do, you know, the right thing. And why, why do I get so much, you know, havoc here? But uh, you know, by the end of the year, I think everybody, but seven people I had a chance to share with. So I wrote a letter to my whole hall uh, kind of sharing my story. And um, I think what was cool is like, well, You know, being an RA and a Christian in a party dorm wasn't the most popular thing for that time. (laughs) Um, You know, by the end of the year, we had this uh, banquet where we we shared it with three other halls. And uh, I wasn't sure exactly how everybody felt about me all the time. But um, at the end, they gave me a standing ovation. And I think that even though they didn't come to faith, there was a respect that at least I kind of lived into what I was believing. So,
0: I was just working with a client the other day, and they talked about the impact their fraternity had on them and the sense of brotherhood that was kind of developed in the relationships that came from that and how that informed them when they were in their 30s and 40s in business and and to treat their employees well and to develop a sense of you know, camaraderie with those on their team. Um, was, was that kind of that, that tight-knit experience that you had at how did those years shape your future ministry and how you viewed the church?
2: Yeah. Well, I was in the fraternity just for about a year and a half because I uh, went to George Mason, then I transferred over. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, I I think what was interesting for me is that these guys who were Christians who stayed in the fraternity to kind of reach people like me, um, the fraternity kind of like they were really popular. One guy was a ladies man, the other guy's a jokester. And so really popular. But when they became Christian, it wasn't a popular move for them. So I was kind of looking at it from a standpoint. As I look back on my life, I kind of realized that how people thought about me was pretty important for me. And so for them to make this move. So I, I guess I felt like I, I could sense a difference between what I was experiencing with them and what I was experiencing in the fraternity. And um, But, you know, there was, there was definitely some tightness in some way with the fraternity, but much tighter with the Christian community that it became a part of, yeah, yeah That's- I'd be curious, sorry, as I just
1: like just hit that for a second. what did it look like you said this person you lived with was a Christian, right, is that what I just heard yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, and, what did and, that in the look like really. yeah, like what did that what did you notice, what was attractive about that, because I think this connects in some way to your writing, like I think there is like a move in some places or has been for a while like. If, if i can just get you to like this church production that we do on sunday with our amazing talented celebrity pastor like you'll be moved to like come to this thing but it seems like you're just in this sort of normal family environment and somehow that maybe pulled you towards christianity a bit maybe just yeah
2: yeah i mean i, I would say first of all it was just the hospitality secondly uh why they, they were willing to kind of give up their popularity to follow this guy, Jesus. So that's what was intriguing to me. Uh And you know, they were just generous and kind people. So that was there, but it, I was more kind of caught by, man, they kind of gave up this for what, you know, and that was more what caught my attention as a psych major and so forth.
0: Oh yeah.
1: That's
2: great.
0: Yep. So, so you've written a new book, the Scandal of Leadership, and I think it's obviously a very timely book for those in our culture today. It's been a big big challenge. Mm. Um, Why did you write the book? I guess we'll start with that question.
2: Yeah, it's been something in me for the last 20 years. So it's not like a new thing. I know it comes at a cultural moment, but I think my cultural moment was about 20 years ago. And um, I think it was seeing in our larger national organization when uh, someone was put into kind of this role of president. Uh, 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 like a good person became less good and then they kind of disappeared and somebody mm-hmm. else came. And one day I was kind of, uh, uh, because our church was kind of fruitful, I was often invited to come and speak at pastors conferences. And and so one time I was asked to speak on spiritual warfare and uh, I was trying to think of how to address that because on our campus, we weren't necessarily casting out demons left and right. So how do I kind of make this sense to our current context and, It was kind of there where I started to explore the work of Walter Wink and just a, you know, not a pre-modern where uh, there's kind of a dualism or a modern like uh, Boltman where he kind of talks about the powers, but then demythologizes them, just meaning that it's more of our existential struggle as humanity. So he doesn't give any real reality to the powers. Uh, Whereas Wink kind of re-mythologizes the powers and kind of put them in, in our current context. And so I spoke there and it really kind of hit a chord with people. And someone even said, you know, this is going to be a life message for you. And and so I started to continue studying. study it eventually, doing my PhD in this area, so a deeper study. And, and then after that, some post-work, uh, especially as it relates to the remedy and kind of a, a new a kind of re-look at Philippians through a different lens. So that's kind of been my journey. So it just happens to come out in this cultural moment, but it's been something birthed to me. And so I've seen kind of this... Problem of leadership and kind of tied in with the powers, and so I, I, as I was kind of looking around, I didn't really see a lot of people addressing the issue from a theology of the powers. It's usually from a psychological, sociological, and I think the powers work at both of those levels, but also kind of a cosmic level.
1: So I, I'm, I was intrigued by your quote. I can't remember if it was the the preface or like the introduction where you you said some version of what you just said there, like wondering why good leaders become less good the longer, they're, the longer they're in a particular role. And that was just a very striking comment to me. Like, what, did, what were you observing or what kinds of things were you observing generally in, uh, in these folks that, that caused you to say something like that? I was very curious.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it felt like uh, for some people, the, the title kind of gave some type of empowerment or, or some type of entitlement to power and control and decision-making. Um, you know, in, in my first book, I kind of make a case for polycentric leadership as opposed to hierarchical or flat because I do think we create structures and structures recreate us in the process. And there's something about the leader, it, it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings, it's kind of putting on the ring and never taking it off and thinking that we're not gonna be changed by it. Wow. Yeah.
0: I-, I wanted you to go, because I was gonna circle back to that later with the polycentric leadership. I haven't read your previous book, but I saw you allude to it. Um, Can you just give us a brief synopsis of that? What is healthy polycentric leadership look like, and how does that, is that a better alternative than many of the models we see today in church leadership?
2: Yeah, I like to kind of compare like hierarchy, polycentric, and flat, you know, hierarchy obviously have, it's kind of a more of a top-down, there's someone in charge, it lends itself to a controlling type of leadership. It, when it comes to spiritual formation, it tends to be individualized because there's only kind of one leader yeah. who we're kind of supposedly modeling our life after. And when it comes to mission, it, it, it doesn't tend to be that missional because if, if a leader has all the responsibility for inside the church, they don't tend to take much time outside of the church. Mm. Uh, flat leadership is kind of an absence of leadership. But as you guys know, like when there's absolute leadership, somebody will eventually jump up and lead and that, that kind of becomes like uh, more of a diffused vision when it mm-hmm. comes to spiritual formation, probably apathy as well as mission. And so polycentric leader, you could say is like shared leadership, poly, just many centers of leadership. And so it'd be kind of like, if you think about a jazz band, uh, talented musicians coming together to play and the lead instrument kind of revolves kind of uh, you know intuitively. Especially when a group knows each other well, and so that that's kind of an ideal picture of shared leadership, where you know we understand each other's fivefold intelligence, meaning like the, in Ephesians four, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, right, and, and somewhat kind of allow those expertise to to guide who runs point one was not so different people have point in different places so the point of that is like sometimes you're leading and sometimes you're following and we usually say a good a good follower makes a good leader but then when they become a leader they're never following any concrete person anymore and so Mm. polycentric leadership allows you to be sometimes you're leading and sometimes you're not
1: yeah it's interesting as because we talk to like leaders and they'll tell us about the importance of like Accountability, for example. So, like, hey man, you need someone in your life that speaks truth to you, or someone that's ahead of you, someone's alongside of you, someone behind you. And then when you ask them sort of privately, like, so who's kind of like calling you on your baloney in your life? Like, who's that? And they're just like, you know,
2: I can't do that.
1: But I, I, I just see like the system,
2: I think so.
1: A yeah, lot polycentric
2: of the, leadership allows your fellow leaders to do that to you. Like we, yeah. we usually tell people if you're gonna become healing and you know, become Kind of find healing and get to the wholeness then you need to be in community and yet the leader themselves often is not and this is a case for a lot of people that have fallen lately you'll find that they don't have any peer relationships especially within the church uh,
0: jerry so one of the questions i have i guess goes back to some research i've been doing right now with a client yeah he so he started at the nixon white house so he's a little bit older in age but started i think it was like five weeks after watergate broke or the break-in mm. in 1972 and here's what was interesting to me. You have that, and then, of course, Nixon is outed, right? So uh, the scandal of that, that leadership development. Ford comes in, and this former White House chief of staff, Bob, Bob Haldeman, he's kind of was very controlling, and you know, according to Dick Cheney, it's kind of the White House. He kind of became the model for a lot of leadership that has happened in the White House since. And when Ford came in, he said, we want um, a a wheel, like spokes in the wheel, right? We want various leaders, because the issue was Haldeman, and that's what brought Nixon down, right? And then they said they tried that for about five months, and then they realized it didn't work. And so Dick Cheney, essentially, his staff gifted him like a big wheel, right, (laughs) with only one spoke (laughs) left, and all the other spokes busted out, and basically said, we just went back to this. and Long wind up, but but in the church, it feels like I've often seen this where you have a leader, they said, You know, we're tired of bureaucracy. We want to run. The mission is great. We need to do things and we invite you to join this, right? Mm -hmm. They blow up and something happens, a moral scandal. Then the next generation comes along and says, See, this was the problem. It was the one leader. And so everyone's a leader. And then it feels like everything stagnates and nothing grows so so how how is polycentric leadership how does that
2: yeah well and i think you just dynamic? yeah i think you describe what i would say flat leadership is right yeah, where yeah. nobody's a leader and everybody's a leader polycentric leader there are leaders and, and i would say you know uh, ideally well they, they should have the qualifications that the scripture talks about of an elder yeah. and and so not everybody's at that point right not everybody is that level of maturity by the way this is one of the reasons why I, I think it's interesting, like when John writes to uh, his listeners that he talks about, you know, as children, you know, to know our forgiveness as fathers, you know, you kind of know God. As young men, you've learned to overcome the evil one. Like, mm. I don't think that most people <laughs> in leadership today have understood how to overcome the evil one because we haven't had a training. We haven't really been disciple. We were in a discipleship crisis. You ask a lot of pastors what's what, what your discipleship experience? They don't have that. Certainly we don't kind of understand how the temptations of Jesus kind of maybe uh, ought to be thought about in the leadership development process because I think those are archetypical uh, temptations that we all face. And even deacons ought to be tested before they're deacons. And so for us, it's not like everybody's leading. There's a few people leading. And, and by the way, like uh, because, you know, for me, church isn't about continuing growing, 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 but about multiplying because the commission is to go make disciples of all the world. The only way you're going to do that is be movemental in, in the way that you are church. And so we always need to be like, just like a, a healthy family, you, you grow your kids up so that they eventually can leave the house and start their own household. That should be the case with every church as well. And, and, and that's often not because why? The leader oftentimes mm-hmm. is going to want them to hang on To what they have and they're not willing to kind of let go. And so even though the pain I'm sure of a parent kind of letting go of their kids, there's got Mm -hmm. to be that process for the church as well. And so uh, no, it's, it's a couple of people. Now I will say that if, if you're, if they're not, if we're not healthy, if we're not fully grounded in Christ, then shared leadership can be more problematic because you're probably going to increase the rivalry between the leaders because of the proximity the fact that they're kind of on equal ground so uh it all it, it probably doesn't work if if you're not you know immersed in christ and ground your identity properly
1: mm. if you as as uh wrote something uh, several months ago that i read and the more that i've sort of been digesting it the more i think it's i'm like man that's really good so way to go as but he he says the people he likes to partner with are secure in christ and he says it's very difficult to work with insecure people and then I, it's like, well, who then can be saved? Because you know, like apart from Christ, of not walking in the Spirit, we all sort of have these chinks in our armor. Um, so, I I think I I like I like the idea of shared authority. Um, maybe this is the question because I was like, man, we see all these failures, and of course, the Mars Hill thing and. I mean, we could go down the list, as was kind of chatting beforehand of just, you know,
0: all these leaders that we've respected. Well, um, let me just hit a few real quick, Dave, for those, those yeah. in our audience. And then you, you circle back to yours. I mean, we, different angles, right? You have those in our audience are familiar with the – some would be familiar with the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, that podcast. Mark, huge for yeah, Christianity Driskell, today. Mark Driscoll. Um, and then you have the, um, the, the Hillsong podcast um, one Carl Lentz, FX. Yeah. Yeah. Carl Lentz. I James McDonald. You had, and then it, from a d- very different angle, <laughs> shiny, happy people just came out on Amazon and that, um, Bill Gothard and in, in the scandal with that. So I think the scandals, we, some people in some groups were like, Oh, that's just the shiny people or the, <laughs> pardon the pun there, I guess, but the people on a stage. Right. And then, but sh- things like shiny, happy people, you realize, Oh, it's, all throughout the local church and you know very conservative context all over so anyways sorry so mike
1: so like obviously there are some places that maybe you would say and i would probably tend to agree with you that are hierarchical but at least it's a benevolent dictator you know and uh but the system like later like who replaces that person if the system in place is really focused on one person like that's just a danger and i like i don't think it's sustainable because like one person is not meant to, to have that kind of authority. I don't think God designed us that way. So when it's not spread out, I think there are problems. Like who do we look to? We see plenty of bad examples. Are there any church culture folks that you're like, Hey man, you, you should see how they kind of have structured their church. It's sort of biblically minded, but it also it's, it's wise and how it's, you know, culturally appropriate right now. Like who, who do we look to Who, who should be our examples?
2: You know, I, I, I think you bring up a really important point and and that is like, we don't have a lot of good examples. And so I think we have to be willing to start them. So I work with a lot of church planters and I I would say, uh, from kind of outside research, uh, after we had been training for about five, six years, you know, 65% have shared leadership. You know, that doesn't mean that it doesn't come with challenges, like I said. And, uh, and like you said, it's like, um, it's a It's a daily task to die daily to ourselves, you know uh, I, I kind of make the case, and I, I think we have to recognize that we are kind of captive to imitation, and I do think that we become yes. we start to desire what our desire uh, our models desire, and so there are a lot of people that we've looked up to that we don't probably realize that we have actually subconsciously you know grabbed their desires and, and they're sure. malformed and so I, I don't think we have, I think we inherited a mess. Uh, and, and we have to uh, start to go back to, you know, first of all, starting with Jesus as our model, and then finding maybe local models that seem very genuine because there are out there, but they, they don't, they tend to be more hidden. They don't tend to be the people on the platforms. So yeah. you're going to have to search in different places than the latest conference.
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm so, the you kind of mentioned this, I can't remember which chapter it was in, but the uh, sort of maybe danger is my word, but sort of uh, the problematic vision of this CEO business model for for pastor, leader, shepherd folks. But there's a lot of material out there that has sort of co opted those things. I think you even had the example of was it Bill Clinton speaking at Heibel's? Uh, Hybel's, uh yeah. I was like, that's not true, but that's true, isn't it? Like he was, yeah. was it somewhere around 2000 or so, like, yeah. like um. Like, talk to us about why you see those, because I'm sure there are some in terms of just if, if success as a church looks like higher, faster, louder, more visibility, more people come into the show. I, I'm not sure that some of those things actually aren't helpful. So
2: talk, talk to me about why you see those things as problematic. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 I think this, you know, what kind of Fitch kind of talks about, and he talks about this in his one of his early books is uh, the the distinct difference between Christian leadership and any other type of leadership is that we're kind of connected to Christ and Christ is our model. And and that's not the case for every form of leadership. So kind of these ideas of leadership principles are just why there may be some usefulness to that. But when you separate it from Christ, it becomes something less than what we're called to do. Um, And then I would say, you know, when we plant churches... Actually, we, you know, I, I think there's a really good book called Slow Church, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and uh, you know, there's uh, uh, Alan. I don't know who it is. Like he he wrote the the patient firmament of a Alan Crater. That's an yeah, awesome Alan book book. of yeah. the early church, and so patience was what they were most known for. They weren't kind of going after the growth. They were simply kind of counter or contrast society to what was around them. Yeah. Being patient was just so different and out of sync with what the culture was that it attracted people. And so they had this kind of unseemingly growth. And so, I mean, you know, God's always working in ways that are very different than us. His ways are above, you know, as high as the heavens are above the earth. So his ways are different than our ways. And so I think when we try to co opt business uh, practices into the church without critically engaging them, it, it is a way of kind of imitating the powers because that is the way the world works. Like Jesus yeah. did not say, go to the world and look in, Find out how they are successful. No, it's like a very different kingdom that is very different values and should produce very different models. Awesome. JR,
0: before we go any farther, I'd love for you to just give a synopsis of the scandal of leadership. Um, talk about the connection between powers. Am I saying this right mimetic desires is that how you pronounce it okay. mimetic desire yeah that's <laughs> not a word that I use often <laughs> and canodic leadership there there's another one um, Kinotic leadership yeah canotic there you go yeah so you, you have these different terms what do you mean how do they tie how do they tie together there
2: yeah so what I'm kind of trying to say is like ultimately you know there's two arts models right there's Christ and there's Satan and uh, and, and what I'm trying to do is connect those through uh, mimetic desire. So let me kind of describe mimetic desires. R- René Jard's kind of one of my kind of dialogue partners. And uh, he was uh, born in France, got one PhD there, one PhD here, six conferred PhDs from six different countries. This guy's pretty much a brainiac. You know, right. He engaged with like Freud, Nietzsche, he kind of looked, you know, started out kind of as a literary critic, uh, looking at like Dostoevsky, Shakespeare, Proust, and and he was trying to understand like what is it that separated like the novelist from, from other like the great novelist from just anybody. The people, why do we continue to study these? And what he realized is that they had something in common, and and it was something like happened at some point in both their life, because he studied their life and their works, and the commonality was this kind of mimetic desire. And that is that our desires are not self-generated, but we simply imitate the desires of our models. So whoever we look up to, we, you know, we desire what they desire. This is kind of what Fifth Avenue, you know, Fifth Avenue operates off or, you know, the market, everything. And, And so that's kind of his first discovery. And then the second thing is he's kind of studied mythology anthropology for like ten years, and again he usually wakes up at four a m studies till noon, and then does his other work after and uh, He was trying to understand why did it seem like people groups all over the world uh, had sacrifices and and so what he realized as he studied ancient societies in particular before there was even any legal system is when uh, mimetic desire you know started to happen, then you, you would have mimetic rivalry. And so that's when your model has something that they desire that they can't share like a spouse or won't share, maybe, you know, a a leadership role. Uh, This will kind of create rivalry. And, uh, and what, what, what happens is the, you know, all of this is subconscious. So uh, I, and I kind of apply this to the church. I'll just kind of try to display it this way. Let's say the, the, you have, you're the lead pastor and you desire to be the lead pastor, not necessarily the work of the lead pastor. Anybody who looks up to you will desire that same thing. But now you become an obstacle to the, them getting the very desire that you gave them if you don't share that, right? And so this is kind of the word for scandal. Scandal is literally you know just an obstacle or a stumbling block, uh, someone who's not enabling you to get what you want. And so um, in this case, the leader becomes a scandal to anybody looking up to them. As scandals multiply in the congregation, memetic rivalry turns into a memetic crisis where everybody's against everybody, but nobody knows why. Mm. Uh, What happens at that point is uh, the scapegoat mechanism kicks in, and that memetically, the crowd lands on a scapegoat, and in the early days, they kill them. Uh, You know, then there was kind of rituals and, you know, humans were replaced with animals and so forth and so on. But uh, this scapegoat mechanism is the kind of his second kind of discovery that he had. Now, the third thing he discovered is the uniqueness of the Bible in the sense that uh, while mythology seeks to conceal our complicity to violence through the scapegoat mechanism, uh, the scripture reveals it, you know, and so in, in particular, I mean, you kind of have it with Joseph a bit, but most, like, most prominently with Jesus himself. Uh, the Jews, then the Romans kind of scapegoat him to the point. And by the way, like the scapegoat was always unanimously and randomly chosen, but it was always unanimous. Uh, in other words, everybody mm-hmm. believed that this person was the real reason for the crisis that we're, we're experiencing right now. And after they killed them, there was kind of this sense of peace, uh, temporary tranquility until the cycle kind of repeated itself. But Jesus comes, and he becomes the the willing scapegoat. And in this case, you know, um, he dies, but be, uh, because of the father raises from the dead, we see that he's an innocent victim. Well, this kind of idea of victim isn't something that has always been around. Uh, Gerard would say, you know, uh, most of history is written with the perpetrator, you know, with a view of the perpetrator only. And it's only uh, those societies that have lived with the Jesus story that have actually the intelligence of the victim. And it really started with Jesus, who at that point disarmed the powers and showed what has been happening since the foundation of the earth with Cain and Abel, this whole scapegoat mechanism. Uh, and, and, and in a lot of ways, it was, it's what allowed humanity to survive. But, it, you know, but now... Now it's kind of been unveiled. And, and so, and, and what we learn is like the, and what, what, what Gerard would say the only way that we can overcome the powers is to imitate Christ for any human being. Otherwise, the powers will pull us into this kind of mimetic cycle and trap. Because if, you, if, if God isn't the transcendent reality for you, you, you will find transcendency in the other. It's what he calls a deviated transcendency where we look to the other. To kind of get our sense of our, our full sense of being, and when you do that, you're going to land in that whole mimetic trap from the mimetic desire to the crisis to eventually scapegoating.
0: So tie that into a relevant modern day example.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I think look at uh, Mark Driscoll, right? Like. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I think like he he scapegoated the other leaders when they weren't kind of towing the line. He talked about like how many bodies you know are, are being built up and he wanted to pile high one, you know, throw them off the bus, run them over, all of that. So he he had the scapegoat in order to kind of keep his sense of control, right? There there are other things kind of operating there. When when uh when I think about the principalities and powers, and I kind of distinction. Uh, By the way, for for Girard, that whole memetic cycle is kind of uh, his deconstruction of Satan. Um, And uh, you'd have to read the book to kind of get into it. I also kind of use Matthew Kraussman uh, uh, in his book Emergence of Sin to kind of reconstruct Satan as a person, but in a very different way than what tradition would say. But let's take Driscoll for an example. Um, I, I think it would probably be important to kind of tie in uh william Stringfellow's idea of the principalities and powers which i think are fallen but can be redeemed but like uh, he talks about the principalities in our our uh, current articulation is image institution and ideology image is kind of the idea there's mark driscoll the person made in the image of god and mark driscoll the image we we both there's two entities that go by the same name our image basically you know seeks us Seeks full devotion from us until we kind of give our lives over to the image and literally become possessed by our image instead of possessing our image in God. I think we see this with Driscoll, right? Um, he paid two hundred ten thousand dollars to get his book on the best-selling list. There's all kinds of examples. I am the brand.
0: So, that, so that's how you get your book is on
2: a New York Times bestseller. <laughs> yeah, but he, you know, he was captivated. His image started to basically possess him. And then the institution, uh, his, his ideology of kind of control or uh, authoritarianism uh, really kind of controlled how he used his power eventually. Mm. And so, uh, you know, ideology are all the isms. And so and, and he used it within the church as an institution. And, and, and I think what happens is like, you know, a lot of, you know, again, the, with the kind of the celebrity culture that we have, uh, a lot of people, you know, are happy with one leader and they're happy if their church is, quote, successful because they actually feel successful and they vicariously experience uh, mm. success through the leader. So yeah. in some ways, they don't even have to grow up. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a unstated, you're the person who's mature in doing this. We can do whatever we want. And it's a happy arrangement. We'll pay you to do this. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, as long as we can continue to grow and I can feel good about it as well. And so this is probably one of the, some of the, the difficulty and calling out uh, and kind of naming when someone is going wrong because there's a buy-in, there's an institutional buy-in by every person in the body because that that principality of institution captivates everybody within the congregation.
0: Yeah, see, this is one of my challenges as I listen because I think sometimes we're part of the problem. Um, Patrick Miller, he did an interesting conversation with Preston Sprinkle several months ago Talking about the rise and fall of Marcel and that that podcast, and one of his, his challenges was he was like yeah it's a great it was a great podcast and I enjoyed it it was helpful to me and you know I found it it was done very well. One of the challenges though, as he pointed out, was again this there's different leadership at the time and all that, but Christianity Today did post numbers of articles on Mark Driscoll as he was rising and ascending. And Patrick Miller's point was you kind of double dip in a sense where you ride the wave up, but then you ride the wave of the clicks of when, when they go down. And the only, the only thing that loses is the local church in the end and the people that are hurt and caught, caught in the fray of things. And so I guess my question is, how do we stop feeding the monster? How, how, mm-hmm. do, we not, how, how do we not buy into a bad cycles of leadership?
2: Yeah, I mean I, I think one of the things that Jesus does is he kind of elevates the most unlikely heroes and heroines, right? It's it's like the the, the poor person giving a pence, it's uh women, it's like people that society would have dismissed. I, I, I think we have to like um like honor people who are t- kind of t- taking that canonic journey, uh, you know, emptying of themselves and uh, not full of themselves. And so we have to, because like whoever we lift up and whoever is our models, we will become like, we become yeah. like the people closest to us. And and so we just have to, I, you know, it, it's like even in Philippians, there was kind of two, uh, Utica and Syntyche were probably mimetic rivalry with each other. And what did Paul do? Like w- one of the things that happens when you get mimetic rivalry, you become doubles of the person. In, in both their actions and their emotions, and, and, and you become obsessed and possessed by them. Uh, and, you know, mimetic desire in its fullness is like, you don't just kind of desire what they desire, the object of the desire. You actually desire the very being of the person. Mm. And, and so whatever it was, re- there's a clear issue with them that was affecting the whole church. So what Paul did, because they probably became mimetic doubles, it's very interesting. He goes, I plead to you, Utica. I plead to you, Syntyche. Like he separated them. And then he pointed them. The whole book of, of Philippians is about good models and, and anti-models. So Jesus is the Ark model. Then there's uh, Timothy. Then there's Epaphrodites. And then there's Paul himself. And so I think it comes down to, because I believe that we're all captive to imitation, it's going to come down to who we lift up as models and who we look to as models. And, and think- the salvation of the people where who you choose as your model is, is you know, paramount. Do you think, though, that I think it's some it takes a great amount
1: of faith because I mean, if you're successful as a pastor, then you, then you have to write a book and then you have to promote that book. And then there has to be, there are certain venues and where that is promoted. And I, um, been going through John for a while and just on the, on the heels of sort of feeding the 5,000 it, Jesus, he it, it says just kind of like, it seems like a throwaway line, but like they were, he thought he perceived that they were going to take him by force to make him King. So he withdraws and just, the willingness to not be a part of the self-promotion celebrity system, I think for a pastor to sort of embrace local embodied things and willing to be anonymous. And and that takes a great amount of faith in my, in my mind to, to sort of kind of take that role. Um, but to your point, I think that's, that's the way forward. Um, if it, if, if folks are willing to sort of embrace that an- anonymity, I guess, and just to, to spread things out, my question would be, here's a question. I've been thinking about, cause as kind of talked about collectivism, how do we, how do we not react once again, polycentric leadership? What does that look like in action? Because I think the overreaction to the extreme hierarchy and the hurting of one person, then you get this sort of flat thing and no one knows what to do. Um, where's the middle ground and then how do we get folks that are caught in maybe you said you're you're a preventative specialist you're not a how do we fix the thing that's broken but how do we get folks that are caught in a system of look at our pastor to be like hey we want you to be equipped to do the work of ministry like this is actually a you thing not a that person thing
2: yeah, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things. I think one of the things is, and, and you know, when we train church planners, we kind of train them in a very different way than what is out there today. Uh, when you think about the four spaces of belonging that Edward Hall, the sociologist, developed and Joseph Myers kind of popularized, you have intimate space at three to four people, the personal space at five to 12, social space at 20 to 50, maybe up to 70, and then you have public space, which is 70 or more. I think today, uh, the 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 tail's wagging the dog when we put ninety percent of our energy time into public space. Um, Jesus lived into all of these spaces uh intuitively he confided in the three, trained the twelve, mobilized the 70, spoke riddles to the crowds or parables and but Jesus was devoted to the the the, the disciples like those are the people he called to live with him i I, I think like for us, so we kind of train people to say the the core space that, and, and by the way any if we're going to be faithful to the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, first of all, we need a structure that actually centers discipleship as opposed to decentering it. And discipleship is not what you get on a Sunday morning. Discipleship has to be close enough because I, I fundamentally believe uh, the role of imitation is more important than instruction. And immersion and mission is more important than instruction. Instruction is kind of third in, in, the, in those three. And so you've got to be close enough. To kind of catch something that, you know, somebody who's uh, a little bit more mature, you can pass on. And so what we do is like we have a discipleship core, that personal space of 12, not a small group, but this is an invite only for people who want to you know, learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And then that social space is dedicated toward mission. So it's more of a a centered set where anybody can come. Ideally, even half the people are are non-Christians. And if that's the core thing that you're multiplying and your public space is meant to feed those things, I think that's going to be movemental. It's going to allow the priesthood of all believers to be there. It's going to have different heroes in there and a lot of leadership that's needed by the whole body. And so that's how we train people. And it's very kind of counter. But how we structure things will will either allow us to make discipleship central or decenter it. And this is a way to kind of center it by the very structure. And you're tying discipleship directly to mission by putting personal and social space together. Do you so think, I think that's part of it. It's like we need to restructure the church. Do you feel like so um
1: I'm at I work at a Christian college and you know we send people to spaces that are the not. they're denominational churches or established churches. They're not church plants and you know what what do you what do you think about what, yeah what, how do you send someone maybe you send one of your friends or something to a local church and you're just like man that is systemically problematic and they're going to have a hard time making disciples in the way that you know you would like to see them made just because the their the whole system is kind of set, set up for failure or or is is not uh, polycentric or something like that like but yet like established churches need pastors too so like what what's the way forward there
2: yeah that's a good point and it's not probably just a structure it's the the very spirit of the congregation you know mm. that could be wow. this is where you get into the powers as well because you yeah. can put people in and out and it seems like the spirit kind of remains similar. <laughs> and so we come we actually <laughs> we actually have a different training for what we call remissioning pastors, people who are trying to remission their church. And I think this is much more hard and difficult than planting a church. At least when you're planting a church, you can say, hey, here's our blank canvas. And even though people come with their preconceived notions and assumptions, you can kind of deal with that, you know, at the beginning. But when you're dealing with something, our, our guy who leads our remissioning, he's working with a close to 200-year-old church. It's, it's like, you know, he, he's practically been thrown out of it multiple times. <laughs> but, like, uh, but over the last, I think he's been at it for like five years or more, uh, there, there's kind of changes happening. And now discipleship is becoming more prominent. They haven't done away with their public space, I don't, and I don't really encourage that. I just think all of these spaces are important. But I think the more important ones are the uh, are the personal and social. In fact, it, it's kind of like when you think about George Whitfield and John Wesley. Like, which one of these guys That's good. is better known? Yep.
1: Yeah.
2: Wesley, yeah, which, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, which one was the better speaker, right? Who is the George Whitfield was the, was yeah, the better who the, speaker, He was the crowd drawer, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yep. Uh, but Wesley got to the point, like, I'm not going to come into a public space unless you set up bands, classes, mm, and societies, society, which is essentially... Yeah he was already intuitively living into that intimate, personal, and social space. And, so, and that was probably the last time we've seen movement in yep. America. So I think we need to help the church become more missional and more movemental. And I would say a huge thing is how we structure it because we create the structure and that recreates us in the process
0: junior we're, we're out of time here, but you got five minutes for a couple questions? Sure. Uh, is, okay. Uh, Sam, he writes in, he says, what can we do proactively to encourage healthy leadership at all levels in our churches?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, so, yeah, I, I go much more in depth you know, in the book, but I, basically we're either going to be a scandal because of our kind of memetic rivalry that we kind of set up because we're not grounded, or we're going to follow the scandalous way of Christ. And so I think we have to start to really like when I say imitate Christ, what does that mean? Like I I go through that very concretely in the book. And I think that the leader leadership needs to do that. And it's really kind of a different approach to finding our sense of identity. When I think about a leader, there's the identity, the leader, there's the praxis or what they do. So who they are, what they do, and the tell us where they're going. Um, If our identity is not in Christ, uh, and our telos is off. It's going to affect our you know, practice of power. And so we have to start with kind of a, a grounded sense of identity. And I would just say, get the book to get a little bit more details on what I mean by that, because I don't yeah. know if we have the time to go into detail.
0: Lori, she says, how do we avoid pitfalls of leadership while we seek to be faithful leaders? So maybe just give one example. What's one glaring weakness that a lot of uh, leaders fall into?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think those, you know, again, that we talked about image, institution, ideology, I, I, I think image today, especially with uh, social media and kind of sometimes our desire to project something that we're not. And that's all of that kind of is going to make us easily start to give more sway and devotion to our image instead of really kind of uh, building our image in God. I think it's a, like a, yeah, uh, how, how do we, I, I think we just kind of be aware of that. There's got to be some way that uh, I, I kind of recommend like the Lord's Prayer as a, as a way to kind of ground ourselves and, uh, and just try to, uh, you know, be vulnerable uh, when I'm not vulnerable. Like, again, I don't know. That's, gotcha. that would be one thing.
0: Stephen, Linda, and Tracy—they kind of write a similar questions here a little bit. They, you know, one says if a scandal does occur, how much do you share with the congregation? Linda writes, should there be counseling available for the ones involved? Uh, Tracy says, you know, could you have uh, some conversation around what is the most damaging things for churches to do in these situations? So I guess to to, to simplify that, um, scandal does happen. Let's say a church of maybe you know 150 people or something like that, right? And a lot of people are devastated. Um, if someone is kind of at a, a lower leadership role, but all of a sudden they're thrust into the spotlight, so to speak, and to pick up the ruins, and they're they're feeling the weight of that right now, and they're listening to this, and they're saying, "What should I do next to help um, with this scandal that's, that's broken out?" Um, what's the place that they could start? I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I would really try to. I, th- there are whole ministries out there that work with this. This is a, kind of my specialty, like the aftermath of the scandal. I'm more in the preventative part. Um, I, I do think that the, if there's a, a public leader who's made a public sin and needs to be public and, um, but I, I think there's a lot of ministries out there that work, uh, with people and I would just yeah. tr- try to find some of those. I don't yeah. have them off the bat, uh, off the hand here.
0: We'll link to all your stuff in the show notes below, but close us out with this. Um, following in the footsteps of Christ. Uh, this podcast is for Monday Christians and, you know, turning Sunday belief into Monday action. And um, yeah, just, you know, what's that look f- like for you on a daily basis? And what's, what's one piece of advice you'd offer that uh, here's a practical way you can start um, living a bit more like Jesus in regard to the conversation that we've had today?
2: Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, right at the beginning of that Philippians 2 is like have the same mind of Christ, like consider others as more important than yourself. Like mm, yeah. if we just kind of think about that, you know, and and it's, uh, in some ways w- what's kind of funny is like, if you look at this canonic journey, it's kind of like saying become a nobody and God makes you a somebody. Now it's not nobody in the sense of your, you know, you have no worth and value and so forth. It, it's like, a nobody in the way that the world wants to construct your sense of identity. Wow! You, you, you do not want to have anything to do with the way the world tries to mold you into, you know, squeeze you into its mold. Rather, like uh, you're really kind of grounding your sense of identity in Christ. And I would say like Paul is the example here, right? Like uh, if you look at his short autobiography in Philippians, Um, he actually kind of, uh, understood like Philippi was, they're all about honor. Honor was the greatest commodity. And, uh, and so he, there's probably 7,000 inscriptions of people who would pay just to kind of honor themselves and their household. And it always started with their ascribed honor or what they were kind of got at birth and their, and then moved to their achieved honor. Because in that day, your ascribed honor was much more valuable and hardly movable. And so he starts out saying, well, I was, I, I was circumcised the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, you know, like he goes into what he inherited, his inherited honor. And then he went, to, you know, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, as with the law of faultless, as with the church, you know, persecuting it. I consider, like this is how he got his sense of identity. This is what allowed him to be a hero to his community. And he says all of that is garbage compared to knowing Christ and the yeah. power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Um, He had an anti-fragile faith, if you will, Mm. that actually grew stronger in the midst of suffering instead of just retaining the same level. It's a different domain of living, and it's basically a a different way to construct our identity. And so I have to kind of go through that on a daily basis. You know, The Lord's Prayer helps me with that. But a real concrete way is like, am I considering others more important than myself? Uh, Because that's the way the kingdom is. It's not the way the world is. It's the way the kingdom is. And, and when you kind of live in that way, it, it starts to be a practical thing you can do.
0: As I read your book, I thought of this line, I felt like in a way you saved the best wine for last. Because the the last quarter of the book especially, the, fr- the first quarter, and then the, the middle, there's some heavy stuff. But the, the last quarter especially really hit me hard. And I thought, man, so... Uh, for those of you that are reading, uh, hang on to the end because the uh, the end is is especially especially good because it points to Jesus. So, Jr, thanks f- so much for taking some time today. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, great to be here with you guys. Appreciate it.
0: Well, again, one of the things that I loved about this conversation obviously it points to Jesus. Yeah, right. That's that's the goal of every good sermon, the goal of every good book that you know that, that it points to Jesus and no one disagrees with that right that jesus should be the model at least within christianity uh the problem though is how does that look how does that how does that um what does it mean to embody a philippians 2 kind of lifestyle yeah putting other people first and all that like how do you do that in the practical ups and downs of life that's that's where it gets challenging yeah and and, and as i think what i
1: once again jr offers us some like practical you know sit with consider others more important than yourselves. i like that he just didn't like here's the five ways you can do that but just like sit with that sentence for a while and think about your life and reflect give yourself some space for reflection and 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 maybe some moments of honesty like does this does this posture characterize who i am or where are my opportunities for growth um, yeah, I've been very challenged just chatting with him today. What
0: was what was maybe a takeaway for you? See, we didn't even get to this. I feel like every conversation we have to have a Dallas Willard story, right? At least, oh dude, that was you know, yeah. and, and he shared this in the book. He didn't share this in our in our exchange, but one of the things he was introducing Dallas back a number of years ago when when Dallas obviously was was before he passed, and he um he was introducing him, and he as he did the Q and A at the end after Dallas spoke, he kind of felt God. Saying, okay, JR, you need to say this, but he didn't want to. And so he was wrestling with it. But finally, he goes up and he kind of nervously says, he says, Dallas, he says, you're not a very good speaker. You know, and everyone gets kind of nervous in the crowd. And, but he says, everyone was hanging on your every word. Right. Yeah. And his whole point with that, you know, Dallas never wrote a book proposal, but he's written how many books? You know, he never sought out, you know, fame yeah and allow that to come to him and and I think there's just so many things that I've just thought about in my, my own life, whether it's social media, how you talk about yourself with others mm. um, How do you position yourself? are, are you uh, comfortable being in a room and not having your strengths always shared? Yeah. Uh, what does that really mean to put others first um, and and to want to see others advantaged sometimes at your expense? Mm. Right, all those questions. I guess were going through my mind as I read Jr's work here.
1: Yeah, it's not. It's it's a deep work, and there's some weighty stuff, especially in the middle, as he deals with some theology of the powers and um, it, some other things in the middle. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's very practical, and I think it does cause you to to reflect. And I think that's, I mean, as a Christian, you know, as a husband, a father, as someone who aspires to be a, a good leader. Uh, I think this is a this
0: is a must read. Yeah, I'd say especially if you're if you're going through maybe a scandal in your church, or maybe you're kind of you're burnt out with scandals and you're really frustrated, and you're not sure. Maybe you're in a transition phase, and you're not sure. Can I trust the church again? There's so much hypocrisy, right? Yeah. And what kind of leaders should I be following? What kind of models should I be following? All that stuff. I would say especially the the first uh, quarter and the last quarter, especially will really help you answer a lot of those questions and so and give you a great framework so that way you when you walk into a context you kind of you're like okay this makes sense uh, because it's in alignment with how jesus lived so that's enough from us Uh, have a great week everyone we'll talk to you all again soon thank you for listening to the monday christian podcast to support our vision and find new ways to put your faith into action throughout the week visit themondaychristian.com That's themondaychristian.com